Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that might be here. We are um, in the book of Obadiah. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to the book of Obadiah? Obadiah has only one chapter, as you know. And uh, we've done a full introduction to the book, which has helped us to understand some important things about Obadiah. Um, He spoke somewhere about 845, the earliest prophet. Uh, The Edomites were descendants of Esau, as we saw, who um, um, was the twin of his brother Jacob, that God identified as two nations while they were still in Rebekah's womb in Genesis 25, 20-23. And when Paul deals with um, uh, Jacob and Esau in Romans 9 about Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. He's quoting Malachi, and Malachi is quoting Genesis 25. So it's talking about national choosing, not individual salvation of an individual predestined. So the context is always distorted by Calvinist. It is two nations, not individual salvation. So it makes a big difference when you approach the text from its contextual meaning. And so it's important. Now in retaliation, as you know, Esau married heathen wives, knowing it would be displeasing to his father, Isaac, and his mother, Rebekah. And then he married also the daughter of Ishmael in Genesis 28, 6 and 9. And um, Jacob left for 20 years, thinking it would be just for a few weeks or so. And at the advice of his mother, she never got to see him. And he went through the University of Uncle Laban, came back by God's directions in fear. God was faithful, thinking his brother Esau was going to kill him. He fell on his neck crying. And there was a seeming reconciliation without there being a true conciliation. And uh, the hatred just continued on from their two nations, as history tells. And we've gone over that. And so we want to work through this one chapter. In um, chapter 1 here, verse um, 1 through 16, gives us the prophetic vision of the uh, destruction of Edom. And so, verse 1 through 9, we have the doom of Edom. And the first four verses, we have the certainty of that doom. And he says, the vision of Obadiah... Thus said the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us rise up against her for battle. So, verse 1 here, God gave to Obadiah this vision, this vision while he's awake. In contrast, we said when a person's asleep, um, he has no real... Uh, genealogy, as we pointed out. He's not like the other prophets, but um, God gives him his vision, and um, it's directly from the Lord, and it's concerning Edom, the nation, who was followed through the original ancestor, which is Esau. Sometimes as mountain seers will see, uh, Edom means red, um, and, and, and um, Esau means hairy, and then the lentils that he ate, and it all ties together. And um, as we went through the um, through the introduction, now he's called 
a seer also through the scriptures because they saw the visions. You see Samuel, you see uh, the prophet Gad, also called a seer. And uh, here, um, Obadiah is one of the twelve minor prophets and one of the nine pre-exilic prophets. The other three are post-exilic, which are Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And so we're just working our way through the minor prophets. But notice here that it is God who began to stir up the nations against Edom. We see many things going on right now in the latter days. We see Russia intervening. We see Iran. We see China and all this. I just wonder how much God's hand is in a lot of this. You understand? God moved Babylon to conquer Israel. God moved Medo-Persia. He prophesied about the head of gold, Babylon, Medo-Persia, the arms and the shoulders and arms of silver, Greece, the belly of brass, Rome, the legs of iron, the ultimate ten-nation confederacy, the feet of iron and clay. Now, God is in control, and God tells the end from the beginning because he knows everything, he can't learn anything, and he can declare things before they happen, so when they happen, you know he's God. But he does not force the person to do the evil. He just knows the evil people will do. Are we clear on that? Because if God forces a person to do the evil, how can he hold them responsible for the evil that he's going to judge him if God made him do it? All right? Real simple. It's not that difficult. Okay? And that keeps things clean. Now, um, there is no reference to reigning kings, I said, north or south, so we don't know the date, but around 845. And we have heard a report, Obadiah and others. They're not mentioned to us, but somebody else, this is a familiar thing that God's going to judge Edom. He had a long reputation, and God sent out messengers among the nations to come against Edom there in verse 1. Whether they were angelic, whether they were men that God was using, we're not told. But again, God is in control. Remember, God appeared to Joseph in a dream, right? God appeared to Joseph again, come back, you know, to Nazareth from there, okay? I mean, God, God does all these things. There's no problem for God to move uh, in the midst of us. Now, in verse 2, he says, Behold, I will make you... Um, Small among the nations, you shall be greatly despised. God would abase Edom because of their abhorrence of Israel. They had this deep-seated hatred. Behold, I will make you small. You shall be greatly despised. Um, God knows the heart of man. God knows everything. Uh, sometimes we forget what we do, or sometimes we forget and we think we did things a lot better than they were. Or sometimes we, you know, kind of put cheesecloth over our sin of the past, and we didn't think we were that bad, and we forget about it. But God sees and knows everything, and, and he, he keeps good books. Like I told you, he's Jewish, and not that he needs them. But um, here, God holds Edom responsible, and in verse 3, God reveals Edom's downfall, um, their prideful heart. Verse 3 says, The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the cleft of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Now, as we looked at our introduction, we saw that um, the pride of, of um Edom here is speaking about the city that they had. 
the place of residence, the red rose city of Petra over on the Jordan side. Beautiful. If you've seen Transformers, you've seen the first building where they, the two uh, androids fight. That's it right there. Okay? And, um, and really that building, a couple other buildings, the rest is just caves and everything else. There's not that much. But the entrance is really spectacular. And then the, of course, snake trail as you walk in, you know, sandstone carved out. And along the side, they would have grooves on it to catch the rain, just like in Masada, underground cisterns. And this is where they collect water. And um, it's pretty impressive as you go there. If you can put up with the meat-eating flies that are over there, Jordan. But um, her place of resting is the security, you know. She just boasted herself and thought, well, you know, we're safe. And, you know, all the um, many of the kings keep their money here because they know it's secure. And they had also a lot of the tariffs and uh, spices and merchants and all kinds of stuff like that, trades. And so they were very wealthy. And... Um, Pride is, is, um, is a very blinding thing. We, we put our, our dependency and our, our, um, our, our confidence in the things that we have, the things we possess, the things that we're very certain of, and then God comes along and just takes all those things away from us. You know, it takes a long time to save money. It takes a long time to build a character. It takes a long time to do anything. It takes time and hard work and dedication and discipline. But one stupid decision can wipe it all out. And God in one thought can sweep it all away. It's no big deal for God. Pride out through the scriptures and the Proverbs throughout all the time. Pride go before destruction. A haughty spirit before the fall. Over and over again. Pride deceives and blinds us to our weakness. To trust in our own strength. And they were trusting in their fortress city of Petra. Discovered in 1812 by uh, Johann Ludwig Burckhardt, a Swiss explorer. Petra was the ancient capital of Basra, a few miles south of the Dead Sea. But in Obadiah's day, the capital was the famous city of Petra or Sila in Isaiah 161 known, as I said it before, the Red Rose City of Petra. And uh, the third city was Timon. And so they were very powerful people, very influential, and very um, wealthy. Um, in verse 4, God proclaimed the downfall despite her overconfidence. Notice he says in verse 4, Though you ascend on high as the eagle... And though you set your uh, nest uh, among the uh, your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. And so here again, the the, the words in the language is is that of self exaltation and everything. Here, the symbol of of the eagle is a symbol of deity. Um, you know, someone who is. Uh, superior, um, and yet Eden thought herself invincible. Also the stars, high, above everyone. And this is uh, no exception. You know, you see it, in, um, you see it in, in nations, you see it in people, you see it in boxers, you see it in the UFC grappling, um, that Ronda, uh, girl, she's just, uh, she's beautiful and tough and talented and just boasted and they, somebody just cleaned their clock. 
You know? There's always someone better. There's always someone hungrier than you. You know what I mean? And, and it's just amazing. You know, you think that the human race would learn from all the history and all the experience, but nah. We don't. Not at all. God dwells far above the stars and, and, and the eagles. He would bring Edom down personally. It says, says the Lord Yahweh, all capital letters. And so there is no one, there is nothing that God cannot overcome. No one is beyond the reach of God. Nobody's too powerful or too financially secure or too protected for God to get to them. Um, men have such trust in their money and their power and their uh, empires that they build. But none of that is, is, is meaningful to God. You remember Nebuchadnezzar walking around Babylon said, Oh, this Babylon that I have built. And boom, God turned him into a beast. He ate grass for a while. And then when he regained his sanity, he gave praise and glory to God. I expect to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven. But he was a hard nut to crack. But he finally humbled himself. Not everybody does. Some people get worse. Verse 5 through 9, you have the severity of... Um, of the doom. In, in verse 5 it says. If thieves had come into you. If robbers by night. Oh how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen. Till they had enough. If grape gatherers had come to you. Would they not have left some gleanings. So here in verse 5. The severity of the doom here. Um, notice the men of Edom had been uncompassionate and merciless. They left nothing indicated by the two rhetorical questions. The judgment of God is, oh, how you will be cut off. No mercy. God would leave nothing for them. God would give them in kind, as we'll see. In verse 6, God will search out her hidden sin and her stolen treasures and take everything away. Look at verse 6. Oh, how Esau shall be searched out. How his hidden treasures shall be sought after. By who? By the nations that he's calling the judger. God can do anything. God can bring a nation and, and though it may not be powerful right now, God can say like Babylon was no great empire and he declared that Babylon was going to overthrow Israel. And by that time, they, when that was going on, they weren't a big thing. Remember Hezekiah? They came to visit him. He was sick. And Isaiah said, hey, who are these guys? He said, oh, there's some guys from Babylon. They're just nice guys. Want to know how I was doing. And, you know, I told them I was doing well and everything. They heard about my illness. And they just, you know, they came to say hi. He says, well, what did you show them? He says, there isn't anything in the house that I showed them. Oh, you shouldn't have done that. They're going to come back and they're going to take everything, your children, everything else. And you know what Hezekiah said? Well, at least it won't be in my lifetime. What a rat. Amazing. And Hezekiah was a good king. But what a crazy statement. As long as he was okay. He wasn't concerned about his children, his grandchildren. You know, as long as I'm going to make it okay. And Babylon did exactly that. Exactly that. 
God knows everything, everything people do, everything that goes on. Verse 7, God declared that those um, they knew would turn on them. Look at verse 7. He says, all the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. And so here in verse 7, notice those aligned with them would press them to their borders. So they would be treacherous to them. Those who were at peace with them would deceive them and prevail against them. Those who ate with them would plot against them. Kind of like Judas Iscariot. The Edomites wouldn't even know it. That's the worst form of betrayal. Someone you trust, someone that's your friend, someone that's close, your brother, your friend, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your wife, your husband. Someone close to you. Remember, David was betrayed by Ahithophel to his own fault. Because Ahithophel was the grand, great-grandfather of Bathsheba. And when Ahithophel fell to be in company with Absalom and betrayed David, it says about Ahithophel, if it would have been an enemy, I could have endured it. But he was my closest of friend. We took sweet counsel together. We went into the house of the Lord. But David was not innocent. Because David was only thinking about himself. And therefore, he actually is responsible for the downfall of Ahithophel to an extent. Because he provoked him by his sin. He knew who she was in relationship to him. So it's incredible the things that people sometimes get away. This time, kind of stuff happens in churches. You know, people come in, they think they're cool, and, and guys are coming out in the world, and they're looking for girls, and they just kind of just start, you know thinking it's a, a, a fishing hole or people come in to rip people off, whatever. And, 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 and if pastors and elders aren't vigilant and they aren't praying and the body's not grounded, the people get over on people. But even if all the vigilance is there, God knows and God will deal with that. No one gets away with anything. In verse 8, God would destroy the wise men from Edom and their intellectual population. Notice in verse 8. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau. So they, they were known for their shrewdness, for their intellect to an extent, and God says, I will remove all that. Now, it is interesting in the book of Jeremiah or Isaiah, if you read in the opening chapters, um, God says, I'm going to judge Israel. And this is how he's doing it. I'm going to take away your, your mighty men, your wise men, all your merchants, and I'm going to hand you over to women and foolish young men. I beg you to examine who is in charge of the majority of America today? Women 
and foolish young men. God has removed many of the wisdom of mighty men, of leaders, of everything. It's part of God's judgment, ladies and gentlemen. There is an order, male and female, the man being the head. That does not mean I am not a chauvinist pig. I'm not saying that women have to stay pregnant at home. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is God has set an order, and when we move out of that natural order, then we own all the consequences. And for the most part, America moved away uh, progressively very slow, and then in World War II a little more, and then through the, after the 60s it just erupted, the 70s put everything to shame, and from there it was downhill. Once the country found out there was a double income in 1977, everything went up twice as much. I bought my first house in 1974, 1,200 foot square house, three bedroom, bath and a half, living room, dinette with a kitchen, double garage, block fence, backyard, front yard, nice in Covina for 22.5. Three years later, when the double income kicked in, I sold that house for 40,000. Because America said, now there's women working. Now we can demand it. Women were excited to go to work. Now they're not. Now they have to go to work. There's a big difference. When you choose to do something, it's fun. When you have to do something, the fun is over. And so all those consequences of no-fault divorce, of the relationship between men and women just living together, of younger people staying single longer, having more baggage, being in the world longer, having more destruction, waiting longer to get married, the homosexual agenda, all of that, we own it. The consequences are ours. You cannot get away from it. And so, verse 9, then your mighty men, O Timon, shall be dismayed. To the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. And so God declared that the mighty men, the men of Teman, would be destroyed. The word dismay there means shattered, broken, and terrified. You know, everybody in every nation has had its champions and always, you know. But when God starts removing Wealth and favor and protection and everything else. Um, uh, men have feet of clay. Uh, there's, there's, there's no one that, that has an S on their chest that, and it means Superman. If it has an S, it's stupid, not Superman. And um, it just takes a long time for us to understand what it means. Um, one of Job's miserable comforters was Eliphad the Timonite in Job chapter 4 verse 1. One of the miserable comforters, physicians of no value. Okay. Isaiah declares, is wisdom no more in Timon? I'm sorry, Jeremiah 49.7. And so they were known for their wisdom, their wealth, their trade, all of this stuff. And that's all false security. That's all just stubble. Now, none of that is wrong in and of itself. If you're walking with God, you're trusting God, you're handing it to God, you're asking for wisdom, direction, you're obeying the Lord. 
God can use that stuff. But you, you get yourself away from God, then all those things around you, whether it be money, whether it be intellect, whether it be social influence, whatever it is, it'll become corrupt and it'll destroy people. I don't know if you've ever seen some of the uh, programs on people who have um, won the lottery. There might be one and a thousand that have been able to handle it. In fact, one of my friends from school, he's a little older than I was, he won the lottery and, and he handled it. He stayed working and his wife and they drove a bus for the schools and, you know, and, and, and they handled it pretty good. But the majority of them, they're broke within three, five years. Because all of a sudden you got relatives coming out of the woodwork. And you just blow things. You know, you buy a car, you buy a house, you take this thing, this and that. And somebody comes by and says, I can help you double your money investment. They rip you off. And because you've never worked for it, so you don't know how to handle it. There's nothing better than hard work, earned money. You'll know exactly how to handle it. You will pray before you invest. You will pray before you buy. Because you've worked hard for it. But if you are just given the money, it doesn't cost you. Ah, well, I didn't have it any. It wasn't mine. And I've known people that they've received inheritance or someone has left them, left them some money. And they've just lost it all. Lost it all. You that are young, even though it's not the America they used to be, you always put something away. For a rainy day, the saying used to go. And um, if you do that when you're young, then you don't have to put away that long. But if you start when you're 35, 40, then you've got to put a lot more in before you can be ready to quote, quote, retire. Now, I'll retire when God kills me. That's when I'll retire. But, um, but, but nevertheless, you, if you work a secular job, there comes a time when they will force you today out. But or you will have to choose to retire, and there's nothing wrong with that. But you want to make sure that you look way down the road so that you're wise in what you're going to do. And so you don't live beyond your means. You don't spend money you don't have, and you don't spend more money than you make. It's just simple mathematics, okay? A lot of the young people today and university students, they don't understand that. They, they want a free education. Free, who, who, who's, is that the name of your dad? Free or what? Somebody's got to pay for it. You know, all the stores, they, they, they calculate the, the amount of theft depending on the area the store is. Some cities have more theft than others. Some areas in a city have more theft than other areas of the city. So that store will, in itself, already make an assessment of the year of what they expect to be stolen. And they build that into your prices so they pass the theft down to the consumer. They're not going to take the loss. You and I are going to take the loss. So for every person that claims bankruptcy, every person who steals, I pay more money. I pay my mortgage, I pay my interest, I pay my taxes, I pay my registration, and now the government wants to give everybody free stuff from my taxes, from my stuff that I put away. Now, I have all the right to give my money away. I have all the right for me to be benevolent. But when you demand and you steal from me, that's absolutely wrong. And so, well, we, we don't have a commander-in-chief. We have a commander-in-thief now. And um, there's a big difference. 
And so we pray that God would be merciful to us, okay? The only good thing now is there's only one year left this administration. So let's see what happens. So, verse 10. On down to 16, we have the deeds of Edom. Verse 10, the Edomites were treacherous. Look at verse 10. He says, For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. And so here again, the treachery that, that, that they played because of the violence here in verse 10, um, the outcome was their shame and uh, their punishment would be to cut off forever. This is God speaking. As you know, vengeance uh, is the child of bitterness. Um, when you get a chance, read um, Hebrews 12, 12 through 17, Esau, when he wanted to, um, with tears, sought the Lord. He wasn't repenting. He just wanted the blessing. And there's a lot of people that have shed tears and, and, and beg and plead with God, but they're not willing to repent. What they're crying about is that they lost whatever it is they want to have. Uh, godly repentance is that we, we regret and we realize that our sin was against God. And we ask Him to forgive us. And so we don't repent that we repented. We're glad that we repented. Remorse is just sorrow for the consequences of the sin or the loss of whatever you were seeking. And when you get over your tears, you'll be back to it all over again. You'll find another victim, another place to play your game. It's just the way the world is. That's the way the man, uh, the heart of man is desperately wicked. Now, vengeance keeps us from repentance because vengeance is never satisfied. Nothing is enough. You know. You know you. <laughs> just when, when, when you think you, you've gotten even... After you have with somebody when you're in the world. Then after a while, that kind of took the steam off the volcano. Then you start thinking about it and you see the guy next week again and, oh, no, that's not enough. It never stops. God doesn't get even. God brings justice. Absolute justice is a big difference. It says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him the drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire upon his head. Romans twelve nineteen through 20. Well, that just brings me to the end of myself. I cannot do that. It's impossible for me to do that. I want to put coals on his heads, okay? But not the way the scripture means here. It means that... He doesn't have anything to warm his food, so you take some coals and you give them to him and he's carrying them home so he can feed himself. So what you're doing is something positive for him. It doesn't mean that you're trying to get him mad. (laughs) The commandment is to do good to him when they want to do evil to you. Now, that brings me to the end of myself. I cannot do that. I don't even want to do that. Unless I yield to Jesus Christ, I'll never be able to do this. But I'll always have a choice as a Christian. I can never say I cannot do that as a Christian. All I can say is I will not do that. Or I don't want to do that. And so, um, vengeance. Verse 11. 
He says, in that day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. So verse 11, the Edomites were heartless. They were observing Jerusalem's siege from the other side of Jordan there, and the enemy carrying off the Jews. And they were rejoicing. You know this. You know what they're talking about here. You remember being in the world, maybe in high school or out of high school, you know, and, and this guy, you know, he just thought he was hot and he has a brand new car and he tries to show off, you know, burning out and he wraps it around a pole. And you're just laughing. That's what he gets. And you loved it. That's us, right? Well, here, they are um, observing what's going on. They're doing nothing. They observe them entering the gates of Jerusalem and casting lots, listen, for Jerusalem at the time. That's God's land. You know how God feels about his land. Who did he give the land to? To Abraham, to the Jews. It's the land of Israel. The Edomites also cast lots, notice, for Jerusalem with the enemies of Israel. And so, they're part of it. God wasn't going along with it. Notice in verse 12, God rebuked the Edomites for being pleased and delighted over the horrible plight of Judah. Look at verse 12. Verse 12, he says, But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother. In that day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. So verse 12 here. They were gazing and gloating over the captivity of the captives being taken. Rejoicing over Judah's destruction. They spoke proudly in that day. As they were being distressed. So we're not to rejoice over evil. We're to be like our Heavenly Father. We're to repay good for evil. You see, if you look at the commandments of Jesus Christ and what he says, doggone it, I, I, am, I am sunk in a hole. I mean, he asks not some difficult things. Jesus asks of you and me the most impossible things. So that I depend upon him. It isn't joining a club of good old boys. <laughs> If there was a name for our club, I would call it the club of death that results in life. Because when you die, then you're the first to live and everybody else around you. But if you don't die, nobody lives. Pick up your cross. But before you can do that, you've got to deny yourself, lose sight of yourself, and then follow him every day. Every day I got to pick up that cross. Every day. Verse 13, God rebuked the Edomites again for being without compassion. Look at 13. He says, Behold, 
The days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman... Oops, I better... I went over to Amon. Verse 13, it folded over on me. Verse 13 says, You should not have entered the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Indeed, you should not have gazed at their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. So here again, uncompassionate. As if you are driving down the street and you see somebody get hit and you pull over and, and you get out just to kick them and get back in the car. Rather than helping them. Somebody gets mugged out here on the sidewalk and you think a guy's stopping, you think he's going to help and he pickpockets him, gets in his car and leaves. That's not far-fetched today. This is the same kind of stuff we're talking about here. Look at 14. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped. Nor should you have delivered up those among them who remain in the day of distress. And so the Edomites were betrayers. Verse 14. They stood at the crossroad. They stopped those who were escaping. Like the shooting in France. Can you imagine people trying to get out and, and, and somebody would just hold them and turn them back? Or someone's in a burning building and somebody holds them and throws them back in? That's what we're talking about here. They should have, they shouldn't have handed them over those who were left in the city over to the enemy. All those who were just scattered about. So in other words, they were complicit with rounding them up. They're brothers. They're related as nations. No love. No mercy at all. And so in verse 15 and 16, the deeds of Edom would be recompensed. Look at 15. He said, For the day... Of the Lord upon all nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. Now, verse 15, Ezekiel confirms this. Ezekiel 25, 12 through 13. And the proclamation is twofold. Short term and long term for the tribulation and great tribulation. He's talking about near here what's going on, but also all the way to the latter days. The day of the Lord. That's the day of wrath, the day of tribulation, the day of distress, the day of darkness. Joel is a prophet of the day of the Lord. We've seen it in Hosea, we've seen it in Joel, we've seen it in Amos. Uh, now we're seeing it here. The day is that day of God's wrath. And um, all nations are included. The principle of sowing and reaping is proclaimed throughout the scriptures. Galatians 6, 7, 3. God was not mocked. Whatever man sows, I shall also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. Sow to the spirit, you reap everlasting life. And all of us understand this. Um, when you're in the world, you're deceived by sin, by your emotions, by people, by influence. So you do things that you don't think, especially when you're young. You think, oh, I'll never, it won't affect me, it doesn't matter. And then you get old and you realize, oh, shoot. And you realize how much you gave up. And it's so great when people can be young and they can have a, 
something besides the little hamster moving around a wheel between their two ears. And they can seek the Lord and follow the Lord and keep themselves and settle for the best. Do you know how e- how much easier life is for them in so many ways? Now, regardless of our past, God is more than sufficient. I'm just saying from the human perspective. There's less baggage, less ammunition, less consequences. There's enough trouble in life. You don't have to add to it. Be patient. Trouble will come. <laughs> Disappointment will come. Tragedy will come. In all of our lives. We don't have to add to it. And so the principle of sowing and reaping. Now Edom had celebrated and drank on Mount Zion. But to their own destruction. And so the nations at the end of the great tribulation will do the same. Look at verse 16. He says, For you drank on my holy mountain. You shall, uh, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. Utter destruction. They celebrate with drink. You know, alcohol is a big problem in our nation. We've seen it through the minor prophets, through Hosea, through Amos, through Joel. It keeps coming up. And that's the way the world is. I I remember, you know, I, I didn't go anywhere without drinking. I mean, you know, even when I drove, I had a beer in my car. You know, I wasn't born again. I drive down Ballin Park Boulevard and Ballin Park and I come across St. John's Catholic Church and I put my beard down, cross myself. And then when I pass the church, I drink. No big deal. Because I can separate my religiosity from my life. No big deal. Alcohol just destroys you. It does more harm than anything else. And so... They're celebrating their, their victory, if you will. And yet, how many people have destroyed their lives through drink? How many things have they committed and everything because of alcohol? And it just destroys so much. It's amazing. Verse 17. Down to 21, we saw in depth this morning... The um, prophetic vision of the salvation of Israel. It's talking about the millennial kingdom. The remnant of Israel indicates those who will believe in Jesus Christ at the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. That's at the end of the tribulation period. That's to set up the, the millennial kingdom. Israel will be saved on Mount Zion. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance and there shall be holiness. The house of Jacob shall possess their possession. Now, it's in contrast, but on Mount Zion. The contrast is between the last verse, verse 16, which is what's going on with Edom. It's in contrast to them and it's looking to the great tribulation to set up the millennial. So the same judgment for the future, the same area over on the Jordanian side. Okay? And that's the parallel there. Mount Zion, that's uh, the whole area there, the city of David. Uh, those of you who've gone to Israel with us, we're sitting on the Mount of Olives right here. Over there, the back doors is the Temple Mount, the Valley of Kidron between these two. 
Okay? This is the Mount of Allah Zaman. Zion is the, the, temp, the hill of Ophel. The old city of David goes downhill, way down there. And then the temple Solomon built up there. And that whole thing is Zion. Okay? Mount Zion. And uh, Zechariah 14.4 says that Jesus will descend from heaven. His foot will touch the Mount of Olives. And it will split in two. And there will be a great fountain flow from Jerusalem. One to the Dead Sea to revive it. And there'll be fish there, as there's never been there. That's why I call it Dead Sea. And some of you have gone there and floated because it's so much salt and oil that you can't sink. Uh, but you gotta be careful you to go with jewelry because it messes it up and you gotta make sure you don't splash and you don't go dive in the, in the Dead Sea. Trust me. Okay. You'll end up in the hospital. And, um, and then the other one will go to the Mediterranean Sea. And so, Israel shall be saved. Again, Paul picks this up in Romans 9. But not all that are Israel are Israel. So those who believe in faith and who turn to the Lord. Jesus said to Jerusalem, rejecting them after he cried over Jerusalem. He says, how many times I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks on her wing, but you would not. So now I leave unto you desolate and you shall not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God is not through with Israel. I reject And we as Calvary Chapel reject replacement theology. We are not spiritual Israel. God is not through with Israel. The church is the bride of Christ, a virgin waiting for a wedding, Jew and Gentile, one in Christ. No Scythian, barbarian, male, female, bond, free, no distinction. We're one in Christ. The old covenant, you have the wife who's been put away by unfaithfulness and it's Jewish nation with a few proselytes that went in. Okay? The Old Testament is centrifugal or centripetal. It comes in. The New Testament is centrifugal. We go out. There's a big distinction. Okay? Israel is looking for an earthly kingdom. We talked about it this morning. We, the church, are looking for a heavenly kingdom. There's another distinction. I didn't bring that out this morning, but you can tag that on. <laughs> Now, God will protect Israel during the Antichrist. As you know, Daniel 9, 27, they, they will make a covenant with the Antichrist. And that's right after the attack of Russia upon Israel, Ezekiel 38 and 39. The first three and a half years will be peace and safety, but false. The Antichrist will give them everything, build their temple and everything. Then Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1 through 12, he goes into the temple, he declares himself God, demands everybody worship him, take a mark on the right hand and the forehead, and whoever doesn't is beheaded. Israel at that time, Revelation 12, 6 says, she will flee to the wilderness, Isaiah 16, 1. Petra, the first four verses of Isaiah 16, where God will hide Israel there, protect her. As he returns and he comes back and he destroys the armies at the battle of Armageddon, then he will gather all the Jews from, from the world and um, they will enter the kingdom. And the kingdom is established for Israel to regain and occupy all the land that was given to Abraham in the Old Testament. All the promises, all the blessings, everything. That's why the disciples kept asking Jesus, are you now going to restore the kingdom? <laughs> Because they knew only the present age and the age to come, the millennial came. They didn't realize the church. It was after the day of Pentecost they realized it. And so, the Jews still have a very um, difficult day ahead of them. Zechariah says that two of three Jews will die 
at the hand of the Antichrist. That is horrible. Two of three Jews will die at the hand of the Antichrist. Verse 18 says, The house of Jacob shall be of fire, and the house of Joseph of flame. But the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them. And no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. So the judgment that will come, God is the one who's dealing with them. Very, very clean. In 19, down to 20, Israel will possess the land. 19, he says, the south shall possess the mountains of Esau. So that's east of the Jordan River, modern-day Jordan. Um, You had Ammon, you had um, Moab, and then you had Edom from the top down. Um, And then at the very bottom, you have Mount... uh, uh, Sinai, where Moses went. It's in Arabia, not over in the peninsula of Sinai where all your Bible maps have them. So turn your back, get your maps, put a circle, put a slash. That is not where Mount Sinai is. Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Read the book of Galatians. Midia is where Moses went when he left Egypt. That's where the mountain is. And if you go on, um, on YouTube and get a video there, Mountain on Fire... And, and get the video, and you'll see it, and you'll blow your mind. The altar, everything that's there. They have fence around, and nobody's allowed to go in there and everything else. You look at the crossing of the Red Sea, pick up the video also there on YouTube. It'll show you the crossing. It'll show you uh, chariot wheels at the bottom of the, of the Red Sea, because you have two. You have the Suez Canal. You have uh, uh, Aqaba on the other side. So by where Elad is. And so um, it's interesting, all the stuff that we're finding now. And so here again... The possession of the land um, and the lowlands shall possess Philistia, which is the Philistines down in Gaza Strip, down that area where all the trouble is. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim, the territory there in uh, north of Jerusalem, and the fields of Samaria. Samaria is between Galilee and Judah. And that's where Jesus said, I must need go through Samaritan because the Jews would go over to Jordan, cross it, and go up, and then shake the dust off their feet and then go to Galilee. Or they would come down the Via Maris, down the, uh, the sea, or the King's Highway over the Jordan side. Those two highways are still in, in use today, uh, both of them. And so, um, Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Gilead is on the north side of the Jordanian side. Towards the north. That's where the two and a half tribes of Israel were in that region. And then the captives of the host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of Canaanites. Okay? Not Palestinians, but Canaanite. It was the land of Canaan, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, all those ites. Okay? And then it became the land of Israel. The land of Palestine or Palestinia was named by the Romans to insult the Jews after they salted the land, 132-135. And the small contingent of Jews that were left were left there to be humiliated and insulted as their land was named after their perennial enemies, the Philistines. And that's where you get Palestinia or Palestine. Okay? That's the history of that name. There has never been a Palestinian nation ever in the world. 
ever. And so, as far as Seraphath, the captives of Jerusalem, who are in Seraphath, shall possess the cities of the south. So all the land from the north to the south, all that was promised to Abraham. Then, saviors shall come to Mount Zion, deliverers. In other words, Jesus is going to reign during the millennial kingdom. There's a whole context. And he will be delegating. He told the 12 disciples, you will sit upon 12 thrones to judge the 12 tribes of Israel with me. Uh, we, the church, will be reigning with him. And there'll be other people that will be delegated and all that. While the people that have not taken the mark of the beast, uh, when Jesus returns and judges the nations, Matthew 25, how they treated the Jew, then he allows those to enter the millennial kingdom who did not take the mark. They repopulate the world just like we're doing right now. They are born, they die, they marry, they bury, they have sin nature. If a child dies at 100, Isaiah says he dies young. All have to repent and be born again if they're going to live in the eternal state. At the end of the thousand years, while Satan is bound for a thousand years, then you have the white throne judgment. Where every non-believer that has ever lived is brought before the Lord and he judges them to sentence them in the lake of fire for their sins. We will never be in the white throne judgment. We go before the beam of seat of Christ. The judgment of reward for us. And so... These saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And so the kingdom age, if you um, were here when we did our series on the millennial kingdom, you learn all the details about the temple, the sacrifice, the government, the land, the division, all the things. It's an incredible, there's more material on the millennial kingdom um, and then, and then many other topics. And yet um, hardly any of the church ever teaches on the millennial kingdom. There's just all over. There's just a lot of stuff. And so here you have Obadiah. Great little book. One chapter. Uh, and there's a lot of great books of one chapter. Philemon, Jude, Obadiah, and others. And uh, they're just, uh, they're as important. They're as valid. They are as inspired there is much God's word and as applicable and needful for today as all the major prophets. Major and minor does not mean minor leagues and major leagues. It's just because of the length of the book, but that doesn't even hold, hold true to it as we saw in the introduction. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness, your love, and your grace. We thank you for Obadiah. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to learn as we just continue to grow. And Lord, we just pray for our nation. You tell us to pray for the leaders, Lord, and that, Father, that we might live peaceably. And that we might be able to have freedom to preach and to minister, Lord. And so we cry out to you, Lord, as you have been so faithful through the 35 years of this church. And we know that you will continue to be. Help our ear to be tuned to you. Help us to be obedient. Help us not to be weary in doing well. And help us to finish well, Lord. We love you, Lord. Father, we just lift our hearts to you. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then God has brought you here to repent of your sins.
to ask him to forgive you. And if you believe that Jesus is God who became man, and that he died for you personally, and that he rose from the dead, and that he sits at the right of the Father, and he's coming back a second time, then you can call upon him to be saved. The word is called repentance. As you call upon him to forgive you, that he give you a new heart, and make you his child, to give you a new nature, that you might be able to turn around away from sin, and walk with God. A 180 degree turn. By his grace. Maybe you're over the internet. Right where you sit. Whether it be there or here. This is your prayer. If you want to be born again. This is your prayer to him. Not to us. Father I come to you in Jesus name. I ask you to forgive me Lord. For all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. And baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I I ask you to forgive all my sins, Lord. I accept you. As my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you made that decision, we want to welcome you to the family. John will meet you to my right. You're led by that door. He'll give you a Bible absolutely free. Share some important things for your growth and encourage you to fellowship with the church. And uh, we welcome you to the family. Let's stand. We'll close in worship. And if you need prayer or you have questions, I'll be up here afterwards. Thanks for coming tonight.